Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the tomb and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and that he will meet them in Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go up to Galilee and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning and uh, welcome to the Leeward Campus of Christ Community. Happy Easter, everyone. You all look good. Uh, so thank you for being here this morning. And again, my name is Tom Nelson, and I have the great joy of serving on the teaching team at Christ Community. Uh, and it is always a great privilege to greet you in the morning. And uh, again, I hope you're doing really well. Like I said, you all look real good. So I hope you look as good on the inside as the outside. It's an impressive group. As a boy growing up in Minnesota, one of the things that I was drawn to immediately was nature's beauty. I can't tell you how much I love the morning sunrises. Yes, as a kid, I was a morning kid then too. Sunsets weren't bad either. What stunned me was the aurora borealis, those northern lights that dance across the starlit sky of a Minnesota night, the crystal carpet of a freshly fallen snow. And yes, if you know anything about the North Country, you know the mesmerizing call of the common loon, skipping like rocks across these deep autotrophic lakes in the silent evening. Inspiring as nature's beauty was to my young soul, I also have to tell you that I was left longing for a lot more. I had a hard time putting words to my thoughts and to my feelings. And I soon discovered as a young boy that this longing for more was not just restricted to my journey. It was woven into the fabric of every human life. My favorite American poet, the New England poet Robert Frost, greeted me as a young boy with his thoughts that reflected my longing. It's a poem that I love. It's called Nothing Gold Can Stay. Let me give you just a couple of the words that are so brilliant. Nature's first greed is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day. Nothing, nothing gold can stay. Now whether you've experienced the breathtaking beauty of a sunset or the goosebump brilliance of a Mozart symphony, 
or the indescribable joy of a masterful work of art that leaves you breathless. Or yes, those intimate moments with the love of your life. Robert Frost captures that haunting feeling we all have. It is that deep feeling that we are left longing for more. C.S. Lewis, one of the most brilliant Oxford professors of medieval literature, was an atheist for much of his life. If you know his story, he became an outspoken Christian. But what drew Lewis to embrace the Christian faith? Yes, as a towering intellect, it was the coherence of Christianity, but it was more. It was something more. It was his deep longing for more. Lewis expresses his journey of faith this way in a brilliant work called The Weight of Glory. The books and the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them, he writes. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. And he writes, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echoing of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Lewis, I think, describes each of our lives that we are often wooed, are we not, by the beauty we encounter or that we imagine. We sense there is something better than we are experiencing now. We long for a world that is truly good and right and just. And as we walk through life, we do smell the scent of a flower we have not yet found. We do hear the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, and we long for a country we have not yet visited. We all long for more. We long for happiness that lasts. We long for our lives to really, really matter. The question is not the longing, it's the destination of where our longing takes us. Where does our longing take us? To the destination of ongoing dissatisfaction and ultimately despair? Or does it take us to true happiness and lasting hope? For C.S. Lewis and millions of others, this deep longing for more leads us to an empty tomb. And surprisingly, it is an empty tomb that makes possible a full life. So this Easter Sunday, I would like to raise two questions that are really important for all of us, wherever we are in our spiritual life. The two fundamental questions of Easter morning are what happened on Easter morning and why does it really matter? What happened and why does it matter? The first question matters because we need to understand what really happened. We're hearing a lot today about fake news. Have you noticed? Actually, fake news is not a new thing. You know, fake news shows up on Facebook, but it also shows up in the good book. Right in the first book of the New Testament, the gospel writer Matthew places the Easter story and wraps it in fake news. Fake news that surrounds the real news of Jesus' bodily resurrection. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 27 and verses 62 through 66. Matthew tells us that religious leaders know Jesus' prediction. It was not a secret that Jesus said, I'm going to raise from the dead. So they go to Roman governor Pilate. And Matthew tells us they present to Pilate a plausible scenario that Jesus' followers would steal his body and then create 
fake news. Make it look like the disciples actually believed and Jesus actually did raise from the dead. Pilate was kind of concerned about that idea. He's already had a lot of trouble. That'd just mean more trouble. So Pilate does what a good Roman governor does. He confronts fake news with security overkill. The text tells us that he acts decisively. He doesn't put just one Roman guard in front of the tomb. He puts a squad. We don't know exactly historically. It can be anywhere from four minimum to 50. So there's a bunch of guards there. All armed to the teeth. Along with that, there's a several ton stone rolled up in front of the tomb and sealed with the authority of Rome. And if you broke it, that meant they broke you. Matthew knows and wants us to know that even the most powerful government on earth cannot stop Jesus, the King of Kings, from his bodily resurrection. So here in chapter 28, on the heels of chapter 27, verses 1 through 10, Matthew now describes the real news, the real good news, in intricate historical detail of what happened. Think of Matthew as a news reporter. He right away addresses the when, the who, and the what. The when is early in the morning. You notice that's Sunday morning in the text. The who are really surprising. They're two Marys. They both are the word Miriam in Hebrew. It's, they're two common names, two Marys, two women. They're making their way to the garden tomb where Jesus' body has been laid. And the what is the empty tomb. That's the big what of the story. Now, because of the supernatural events in this detailed narrative, we may be skeptical, right? And it's true all across human history, 1st century, 5th century, 20th century, 21st century. We may be skeptical of the historical veracity of this text because there's supernatural elements woven into it without blushing. Let me say right off the front that the fact that there are two women who are the very first eyewitnesses of the bodily resurrection of Jesus speaks volumes to the historical authenticity of Matthew's account. In this cultural context, women were not given legal status. They could not be legal witnesses. We may not like that, but that was the first century. So the fact that Matthew presents to us two women being the first eyewitnesses smashes any idea of a fanciful fiction account. So Mary and Mary make their way to the garden tomb. If we put ourselves in their sandals early in the morning, I don't know if they're morning people, had their Starbucks, I don't know what, but they're really going to be surprised, right? No one would be ready for this. And Matthew describes what a traumatizing moment it is. There's a series of events that would have been mind-numbing to anyone and emotionally traumatizing. There's a great earthquake, terrified Roman guards, the seal of uh, Rome broken on the tomb, the massive multi-ton stone rolled back, and then to top it off like frosting on a cake is a messenger, a divine messenger sitting on the stone. Now that would wake you up in the morning. There's a picture of a wow here. And Matthew seems to suggest Mary and Mary actually experienced the earthquake, at least its aftershocks. And if you've ever been in an earthquake, it is one of the most scary things imaginable. Imagine having an earthquake on your honeymoon, which is one of our greatest memories, listen to me. <laughs> honeymoon stories are amazing. But seriously, we were in Acapulco, Mexico, and the Torre Blanca is a high-story hotel on our honeymoon. <laughs> in the middle of the night, we are jolted out of bed. Literally, the bed skipped across the room. 
because of an earthquake. And if you've ever been in high seas on a cruise, the walls were going just like this. Minnesota boy ain't never experienced that. <laughs> I thought we were dead. It was the most scary experience. I've been in planes that have been going. I mean, it was the most scary experience. These women are unbelievably scared. In the wee hours of the morning, right? The ground is shaking underneath them. The massive stone rolls away. And that's not enough. There's an angel, an angelic messenger talking to them. That'd freak anybody out. Now notice Matthew in the text, if you're following along, Matthew does not, he showcases the intense fear, but he, he really wants us to hear the words that fill the air. Look at verse 5 and following. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he is risen, notice the text, just as he said. I think the angel paused there and looked him in the eye. Okay, come see. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. And I think it's kind of a nana. I've told you so. It's kind of a nana-nana thing, I think. The angelic messenger not only conveys the news of Jesus' bodily resurrection, this divine spokesperson invites these women to the undeniable truth of an empty tomb. Now, if you've been a part of our series, uh, as a church family, we've been going through the book of Matthew. And you know from a literary standpoint, as a thoughtful listener and reader, Matthew loves irony. (laughs) He just drips with it. So in verse 2 earlier... Matthew's emphasis is on the stone being rolled away. It's important for us to miss, not to miss. Why? Why is it important the stone is rolled away? It's not to let the resurrected Jesus out. It's to let the world in to see. And here, if we glance forward, we notice, again, the dripping irony again, once again. In verses 11 through 15, the gospel writer highlights that following the real news of the empty tomb, what do the religious leaders do? (laughs) They had feared earlier with Pilate a fake news scenario that disciples would steal the body. Now they bribe the guards and promote the very fake news that Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. Desperate times call for desperate measures. But there is a riveting, riveting contrast that flows in the irony. Very intentional by Matthew. It's a contrast to religious leaders to the two Marys. Mary and Mary aren't desperate at all. The angel reminds them in verse 6, hey, Jesus told you earlier he's going to rise from the dead. Now, gospel Matthew has told us several times that Jesus said that. But if you were in that traumatizing moment, would your memory work? Not mine. They just can't remember. So the invi- angel invites him to look in the tomb. And he says, now go tell. I love what happens next. See the contrast? The big, tough Roman guards, they're frozen in fear. And Mary and Mary, they run. The text says they run. Can I say that? I think they sprint. But they haven't gone far before someone stops them dead in their tracks with grace and humor. Notice, if you have your Bible open, verse 9, or listen, and behold, this word behold is a sort of sense of awesome, right? Alert. Behold, Jesus met them and said, now this translation is very challenging. Greetings is almost like he said, 
Good morning. It's a bit of humor here. Good morning. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. We may be tempted to read Matthew's account of that first resurrection morning as an inspired, fanciful story, not a factual account of what took place in time and space, but Matthew won't let us go there. Matthew won't let us go there. There are so many persuasive facts that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. This is where the factual road takes us. Many things. Let me highlight a few of them. There's the fact that a large number of eyewitnesses see Jesus in his bodily resurrection. It's the fact that Jesus' body was never found or presented. The fact that Mary and Mary, as monotheistic Jewish women, do something no monotheistic Jewish person would ever do, and that's to fall and worship a human being. They only worship the one true God. The fact that the day of worship changes in a Jewish world from Saturday to Sunday. Every Sunday you come to church, you are declaring with the early church that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning. There's the fact of the radical transformation of Jesus' first century followers, many who gave up their life as martyrs. The fact of the growth of the Christian church from a handful of people in a remote part of the Roman Empire to billions of people in the world today. So the fair and open-minded person, the evidence of the physical resurrection is compelling. What happened on that first Easter morning? You better believe the evidence points to Jesus bodily rose from the dead. But the question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? The Apostle Paul, who encountered the risen Christ on a dusty Damascus road, reminds us in his letter to the Corinthians to a church in Corinth, Greece, that if Jesus did not bodily raise from the dead, the Christian faith is incoherent and absurd. If Jesus did not bodily raise from the dead, Paul says, there is no solution to human brokenness or injustice or evil. There's no meaning. And our longing for meaning is a taunting mockery that life has no meaning. See, whether we consider ourselves a Christian here this morning or we're considering the Christian faith, we need to grasp that Christianity is not just a moral system of teaching. Christianity has exclusive truth claims based on a person who lived in time and space history, claims that must be validated or repudiated. If Jesus bodily rose from the dead, Easter morning is the ultimate game changer. It was clearly the game changer for Mary and Mary. I just love how Mary and Mary are the focus of Matthew's attention in verse 8. Their hearts on the way to the tomb are overwhelmed with sorrow, and now they leave overwhelmed with joy. And the text, the idea of fear here is a sense of awesome wonder. This is like awesome, awesome, awesome. They peer into the empty tomb, and all their fears are eclipsed by the hope of all hopes. This is the day that changed their life. It's the day that changed the world forever. It's the day that can change your life as well. But why it matters so much is the empty tomb points to three of the deepest longings of your heart and mind. The longings for love that never fails, a life that never ends, and work that truly matters. Easter points to the deepest longings of a love that never fails, a life that never ends, and work that really matters. Each of us longs for a love that never fails. This is not a love, a mere romantic sentimentality, but our very creation design. 
The Bible tells us we were created by a relational God with relationships in mind. Yet with sin and death entered God's good world, the loving relational intimacy we so deeply long for with God and with others was profoundly marred and vandalized. We may feel the heartache of a marriage that did not last or is deeply struggling. Or a relationship that is abusive or unsafe. Or the quiet desperation of a stagnated friendship suffering from disinterest and neglect. Few things validate more the presence of sin in our world than the wounding, heart-wrenching shrapnel of love that disappoints us and fails us. The good news of the gospel, however, points to a love that we were meant to experience made possible through Jesus' sacrificial and atoning death on the cross. Jesus' bodily resurrection is the ultimate vindication of what was accomplished at the cross. The forgiveness of our sin, a reconciliation with God, and Jesus carried our sin on his shoulders as the sin-bearing Lamb of God who was cursed and abandoned by God the Father so that you and I would never have to be cursed or abandoned by him. That we could experience a love that never fails us a love that never lets us down. Apostle Paul writes, but God demonstrated this love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's reconciliation makes it possible for you and I to experience the intimate love that is safe and secure and lasting and deepening throughout all eternity. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah looked to the empty tomb, I'm convinced, longing for the longing where the tomb would point. And he writes these words, speaking of God, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's how much God loves you. That's how God loves you. The cross of Christ and the empty tomb that followed is the ultimate exclamation of God's undying love. It is a love that does not leave us dissatisfied, longing for more, but grows and deepens throughout all eternity. Christ's love will never fail us. Let me ask you, honestly, honestly, who has unconditionally loved you from your very first breath until your last? Only Jesus can do that. Will you embrace his love? It is a love that never fails. The good news of the gospel speaks to the longing we all have of a love that never fails but it also speaks to the longing of a life that never ends. It doesn't take us long in life to encounter death, does it? I learned this as a young boy as I lost my dad to death. It doesn't matter our age or our life circumstances or our accomplishments. Death is our greatest fear and it confronts us with the greatest questions of life itself. Is death the end? Or is death a new beginning? Whether it is someone we love, we long for death not to be the end, don't we? Jesus addresses the deep heart longing and he points us to the work of the cross. One of the most familiar verses of the Christian scriptures, John three sixteen, we hear it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. How do you find meaning that death can never take away? 
The Bible doesn't mince words about how we should view death. Death is our enemy. Naturally, we fear death, unless, of course, we know the enemy has been defeated. And this is what the bodily resurrection of Jesus promises, a life that will never end. See, the grand story of the Bible, if you want to put it together, from Genesis to Revelation, the first and last book of the Bible moves from the Garden of Eden where death invaded it to the garden tomb where the resurrected Jesus defeated it. Easter morning was the day death died. And yet we must remember the empty tomb not only gives us hope for the future, but it gives us strength in the midst of the brokenness that we struggle with every day here. One of my favorite current writers is Ann Voskamp. She makes this comment. She says, we're the resurrection people. There's no turning that stone back now. What's been wearing death clothes in a life that can get up and walk, what we felt as wounds by his wounds are being healed. What's being burnt to ashes will birth beauty. The good news of the gospel speaks to the longing of a love that never fails us, to a life that never ends. But we must not miss where Paul goes, and that is to work that truly matters. Easter Sunday not only points us to eternity, it speaks profoundly to here and now. Easter Sunday is followed by Easter Monday because we were not only created with intimacy in mind, each one of us was created with accomplishment in mind. We long for our lives and our work we do to matter. Yet the writer of Old Testament Ecclesiastes asks the question, does it matter? Does it matter? Work has its frustrations and fulfillment. Does it matter? One of the major phrases of Ecclesiastes is meaninglessness, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. It doesn't matter. Or does it? Ecclesiastes looks to the hope of the empty tomb. Without the empty tomb, all of life, including our work, is ultimately meaningless. But with the tomb, everything matters. The bodily resurrection of Jesus declares our work our vocational callings, whether we are paid for it or not, are not meaningless at all, but are brimming with significance now and forever. The Apostle Paul finishes his greatest discussion of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he ends it with this crescendo. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, what? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in your Lord, your work or labor is not in vain. That means in meaninglessness. Paul is addressing the question of Ecclesiastes. Is it all meaningless? And he looks to the resurrection of Christ, the emptiness says it all matters for the glory of God. It all matters. The empty tomb not only speaks to the truth we hold dear on Sunday, but the work we are called to do on Monday. Like God's work, our work has undying value. Like God's work, our work is creative. Whether we are writing a paper for a class students, we are making computers or software, we are selling shoes or underwriting loans, or financial products, or raising children, it all matters because of the empty tomb. And our work can be filled with the foretastes of the new creation, the resurrection of all things Jesus has now begun and one day will complete. See, the bodily resurrection of Jesus affirms the goodness of everyday material world we live and work in. It is God's good world. 
And the resurrection body of Jesus that cooked breakfast and ate with his disciples demonstrates there is a significant continuity between the present reality and the new creation world to come. The empty tomb declares that all of life matters. That Easter Sunday matters means Easter Monday matters in your life and mine. The empty tomb is the beginning of the eighth day of creation. And it's the defining intersection of whether or not everything really matters or nothing ultimately matters. The hope that our deep longings for more will be fully satisfied is found in the empty tomb and only in the empty tomb. Our longing for a love that never fails us, a life that never ends, and work that truly matters. A few individuals have shaped our modern lives more, and I think of him almost every time I pull out my iPhone. It's the brilliant founder and visionary of Apple computers, Steve Jobs. There's much about Steve's life that is not only fascinating, but challenging. But his Biographer writes of an amazing story. Steve Jobs is dying with cancer. He's confronting his own death. And he invites the brilliant Yo-Yo Ma to come visit him. Can you imagine Yo-Yo Ma walking in your living room bearing his 1733 Stradivarius cello? Can you imagine Yo-Yo Ma performing a concert in your living room? The story is told that as Yo-Yo Ma performs this concert, Jobs, who was not known for this at all, begins to have tears rolling all down his face. With a broken voice, he looks at Yo-Yo Ma as he finishes playing. He says, your playing is the best argument I have ever heard for the existence of God because I don't really believe a human alone can do this. And Jobs made Yo-Yo Ma promise to play at his funeral. See, the beauty around us woos us. Woos us to someone. And the beauty around us leaves us wanting for more. And it points us to the one who is truly beautiful in whose very image you and I have been created and in whose blood we are redeemed. Like Steve Jobs and the beauty all around us, we too smell, don't we? The scent of a flower we have not yet found. We hear the echo of a tune we have not yet heard. We get glimpses of news from a country we have not yet visited. But will our longing for more take us to the empty tomb? For it is the empty tomb that makes possible a full life, both now and for all eternity. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, wherever you are in your spiritual life, May I encourage you to take a moment of reflection. 
you have big questions and are skeptical, if you're wrestling with the faith, the Christian faith, I encourage you just to pray. Say, God, if you're real, Christ, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. May we hear the words that Jesus said that he is the resurrection and the life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never looked into the empty tomb to find a love that never fails, a life that never ends, and work and life that matters. Jesus came and died on the cross for your sin and mine. He raised from the dead. He gives us new creation life as a gift when we in repentance of our sin and faith trust him as our Lord and Savior. Maybe this morning is that morning when you trust Christ, when new creation life invades your heart and mind. And if you're a follower of Jesus already this morning, may you follow him this week with a greater sense of passion and mission. And may the longings of your heart lead to him, to a love that never fails, a life that never ends, and work that really matters.